this is an embarrassment, really. It's a huge stain on our contract, and yet, you know, nothing seemed to get done about it. And so, you know, the more I thought about that, the more, you know, I basically determined that, well, you know, if if anyone was ever going to like do anything about it, then wouldn't they have already? And when I asked myself that question, I was like, all right, well, I guess that just means that if anyone's going to do it, it's going to have to be me. Hello, my name is Teddy Ostro. Welcome to the Upsurge, a podcast about UPS, the Teamsters, and the future of the American labor movement. You are listening to an exclusive bonus episode of the Upsurge, exclusive to our Patreon supporters as well as Teamsters, who may have gotten an RSS link from me or from others if you indeed did get a hold of that free link. It's for Teamsters only, so share away among your union siblings, but there's no way for me to police it. So I'm putting my trust in you guys, hoping you would extend that solidarity that Teamsters are so famous for to the Upsurge podcast, where we are trying to draw attention to the important work you're doing. If you appreciate the show and are not a patron already, please head over to patreon.com slash upsurgepod. You can find the link in the description. And thank you so much. If you are already a patron, you are the reason why this show still exists. And to make it extra sweet, you may have heard in our last episode that we are now partnered with the excellent magazine In These Times. They produce some of the best labor journalism out there, period. And the next 50 people who become supporters of our Patreon will get a free one-year subscription to the magazine. So don't miss out. On to the show. For this episode, I spoke with Matt Cavagrotti, a part-time air worker, Teamsters Local 519, who works at the UPS Air Gateway at the McGee-Tyson Airport in Knoxville, Tennessee. You'll remember him from episode three on part-timers, but air work at UPS is a beast of its own, which is why we thought it deserved an episode of its own. In the National Labor Contract at UPS, there's a special article that lays out the conditions for workers like Matt. It's called Article 40, and we're going to dig into why it's a stain on the contract that you probably haven't heard of. But the basics are Article 40 was introduced in the late 80s, right when UPS started breaking into the overnight air delivery sector, which FedEx had pretty much cornered due to UPS's negligence. To compete, UPS demanded a number of concessions from the union. For example, just right off the bat, most air workers are part-timers, and further, their protections and benefits are notably worse from other part-timers in ground warehouses, for example. If part-timers in regular warehouses are like the second tier to full-timers, air workers are like the second tier to part-timers. We'll get more into the details and the history, but Matt will also talk about the organizing he's doing around this issue. That includes putting together an air worker day of action to draw attention to the problems with Article 40 and the struggles of more than 10,000 U.S. air workers at UPS's 90 air hubs and gateways across the country. That action will likely be in May. Look in the description to find Matt's email address so you can find out how you can get involved or show your solidarity. And one more thing, apologies for some weird cuts. We had some internet issues during the interview, uh, but enjoy. Matt Cavagrotti, thanks for coming on The Upsurge. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Matt, some listeners may know you from 
our episode on part-timers, but first, maybe introduce yourself again. What's your local? Where do you work? What do you do? And how long have you been doing it? Yeah, sure. So my name is Matt Cavagrotti. I am a part-time worker and a shop steward at the UPS Air Gateway at the McGee-Tyson Airport in Knoxville, Tennessee. We are represented by Teamsters Local Union 519, and I've been doing this for about five years. So I brought you on to talk about Article 40 in the UPS contract and how that impacts workers' working conditions, the pay, the protections, and specifically of air workers. But first, can you give us a lay of the land of who air workers are and what their conditions, their pay, everything really means in comparison to other positions in the UPS workforce? Yeah, sure. So the way that I described air workers in the previous episode of your podcast is that if they're if they're like other sort of forgotten about or underrepresented workers at UPS, you know, like the second tier 22-4 drivers or, you know, like part-time package handlers at the ground hub, then air workers are like absolutely dead last on the totem pole behind them. And that's because we're sort of off on an island, you know, at our like airport-based operations, away from, you know, the large UPS ground hubs and centers and, you know, that like dot the rest of the country. And so air operations are, are usually comparatively smaller too. So, you know, the rest of like the UPS world tends to forget that we exist unless we remind them. But we do exist and we're an extremely important part of UPS's business. We've grown to become that way over the last 30 or 40 years. So there's about 20,000 of us worldwide, and I I don't have a hard stat on this, but I'd say it's pretty reasonable to assume that probably half of those are are in the United States, and we are spread out between about 90 air hubs and gateways in key locations across the country. So if, and and almost all of those are exclusively part-time positions. And so if you order anything next day or two day shipping through UPS, then it goes through us. And can you give us a sense of what these jobs are? So you mentioned most of them are part-time gigs. Who are the air workers? Are there different positions? What What can we expect if we we're looking at the operations on the tarmac. Absolutely. And it's not just the tarmac. So I can speak, you know, directly to, you know, like my building most confidently, but never having physically been to like, you know, another air operation, you know, I only have like a mental picture of how some of those are set up. So like, I'm going to try and speak in broad strokes, but just keep in mind that they're all like set up a bit differently. But as far as I understand it, you know, there's, there's sort of two components there. There is a sort of like inside, like building component where a lot of what we do wouldn't look all that different 
from what you might expect the job of like a part-time package handler at a hub would look like in the sense that like they they work in a building that like you know trucks come to and they bring volume and that volume is is you know unloaded and processed and etc cetera, etc cetera. you know perhaps maybe the key difference being is that there's just maybe not like a ton of like crazy complex like conveyor belt systems that like these packages are like working through like the hubs because really you know what we're trying to do is to work through this volume so that we can get it prepared to get moved outside and to get put on a plane and so you've got people who work on the inside doing that. And then you've taneously also got people on the outside working around the, the planes and are often operating, you know, heavy equipment, whether they're, you know, driving these little tug cars that zip around and, and pull these containers of volume, or, you know, they're, they're driving a sort of supersized forklift that, uh, uh, that lifts these, these containers full of full of volume up into the plane and so on and so forth. And so the division of labor is, you know, it's it's some places, some people might stay, you know, in, in any one position throughout the entirety of their shift and that's just their thing. But in other places, there's a greater degree of flexibility where people might kind of be back and forth between the one or the other and they might wear multiple hats. And so it really is a bit of a mixed bag, but yeah, there, there are some important ways in, in which, you know, it's it's set up very differently than than ground operations. And so like the working conditions that, that we experience, especially contractually, are are markedly different. Great. So let's get into Article 40, Article 40 of the National Master Agreement. Just for listeners who don't know, the way it works is there is a, there's a national collective bargaining agreement that covers all UPS work represented by the Teamsters. And there are supplemental, what are called supplemental uh, contracts, uh, riders and other contracts basically that are in addition to this larger national agreement, whether it's by region or by local, basically just add-ons. And there is this article, Article 40, that we brought Matt on to talk about. So what what is it? When was it introduced? Why was it introduced? And why should people invested in the UPS contract campaign care about this? Yeah. So right out the gate, I'm just going to say this is absolutely the worst part of the contract. And when I say worst, I, I mean like it is the part of the contract that is like more substandard and, and like more against like, you know, the level of quality and standard that you would expect in like, you know, any other position in like the rest of the company, because it really hasn't been changed much since its inception. And so there's plenty that I can say about it. I could soapbox about this all day. But what you and I did do is that in preparation for this exchange, we both read a chapter of Joe Allen's book, The Package King that details the the origins of like this particular section of the contract and then just the development of express delivery services within the logistics industry 
in general and UBS's places in that. So I was hoping that we could kind of have, you know, an, an exchange on this because this is a really interesting development sort of like within, you know, the, the history of American business and like, you know, the history of transportation within, within this country. And then, you know, within the history of, you know, you know, the, the, the free market world. Just so everyone knows, Article 40 deals with air workers, of course. And Matt, if you want to begin to elaborate on what you just started to mention, we can turn back the clock to the 1980s to when Article 40 was first introduced. And maybe we can start, yeah, with what UPS sort of looked like in the airspace compared to its competitors, if you want to begin there. Yeah, there's really no other proper way to do it. It's the the early 1980s. And I really personally, I guess what struck me about this chapter is sort of how long like this took to develop like this idea of like a 24 seven, like fully globalized world where you can just get things to where you need them to be nearly instantaneously. But by the, the early to mid 1980s, FedEx has, I don't essentially cornered the market on this. So UPS has this, they, they've more or less cornered the market on ground and FedEx has done it on air. And there's been a, at the time, there's a bit of denial on behalf of UPS as to like the significance of this, but, but FedEx is doing it really efficiently and they're finding that they're quite good at it and that it's, it's perhaps more lucrative than many people would have expected. And so within UPS, there there is reluctantly, you know, eventually a recognition that existentially that that the future of their business is going to rely upon their ability to adapt and compete with FedEx on this level. And so they 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 start rapidly building out their air operations. Till 1987, they finally codify it in, in contract language in which Article 40 is created and it explicitly creates, you know, certain classifications of, of work for air workers and outlines all of the conditions under which the air operations around the rest of the country will operate and treats them more or less as a distinct entity. And in doing so, you know, one of the interesting things that that I learned about this this article along the way is not only that like is this bound up in the uh, sort of history of the 1980s in which not just teamsters but also unions many unions unions across the country are like making major concessions to to companies. This is like in the wake of the failed uh, patco strike that was broken by reagan the the air traffic controllers were federal workers that that struck and were essentially fired and replaced and it was a sort of watershed moment in the history of organized labor in this country that sort of set the tenor or the tone for like how unions operated you know for you know at least the next decade if not more at the same time that like we are entering into this like increasingly like globalized and, and instantaneous economic environment and and companies are having ha having to like adjust to this 
And so one of the, one of the things that I learned about art, Article 40, you know, upon like taking a closer look at it and and trying to get things changed about it is is that the entire thing is is more or less a concession in the sense that like just just like the very first paragraph of it says that in order for UPS to like rapidly grow out its operations and remain competitive in its space, that this article will allow certain things to happen that like normally in other parts of the company, like would not happen. In other words, that the union would agree to allow the company to have like an exceptional degree of flexibility in the way that they run these air operations. And not only that, but it also says that whatever is written here in this part of the contract is the bottom line, that no other parts of the contract can like, you know, intercede or supersede this, that, 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 that this is basically set in stone. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Article 40, right, this is introduced two years before there is this consent decree by the federal government following an investigation into corruption of the Teamsters Union that eventually allows right the members to vote on their top leadership. Uh, this is something that we talked about with Rand Wilson in our 1997 strike episode. And he talks about how there is this influx of part-time jobs in this moment at UPS and not not only at UPS, but across America. So this is introduced at a time when the union is certainly in decline right before there is a sort of a, I wouldn't say return to democracy, but an introduction of democracy within the union. And we have this massive concession where it's very clear cut, right, that UPS depends on low wages, precarious work, in order for it to expand, in order for it to com compete with FedEx, which had pretty much done what UPS did, but in air work or air deliveries, right? UPS sort of was a sleeping giant of sorts. It kind, kind of came out of nowhere and into the most important courier service in the United States. FedEx did the same thing. And so we have Article 40. And yeah, let's, let's dig into what that actually is you you sort of mentioned a couple things but you know what are the what were the stakes what are the conditions that were put on air workers can you give us some examples and expand on you know what are we dealing with here and what hasn't changed since 1987 yeah sure so we can we can do this and then perhaps we can circle back around after we we lay out you know some some of the specifics we can circle back around to then you know why should the rest of everybody else care you know about about all of this stuff so i already spoke about like the 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 you know what's what's called the preamble to article 40 in in which um is is included in article 40 supersedes anything else not only in the rest of the contract, but also in these supplemental and rider agreements. So the the sort of function of like the supplemental and rider agreements is that they they function as like an add on in and what they allow um, 
the union to do is, you know, whatever doesn't get taken care of in the national contract, then they have then the opportunity to try and win a bit of like better conditions or like working terms, like in their own particular like area or region. And so right out the gate, Article 40 says, yeah, you can't do that. So whatever is in there, you know, it cannot be improved upon by like any additional efforts. It has to be addressed you know, head on or or not at all. And so you have like all of these sort of like special things that air workers like go through that people in like the rest of the company not only don't have to go through, but like when they learn about this, like many people that I've spoken to just can't even believe that this is actually the case. Like, for example, many air hubs and gateways have no hourly guarantee. For example, the part-timers at ground hubs have a three and a half hour guarantee that so long as they show up and they report to work, you know, the company has to put them, they at least have to pay them for three and a half hours of, of work, whether or not they actually wind up finding that for them or not. And so that's not a given for many air workers. And then there's also the case of like these these air drivers, and there's there's two classes of them. There's both part time and full time. And the 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 part time for for example, they don't get any overtime after five hours, like all other part timers do. They only get it after eight hours. You you also have this this other kind of unique classification of air workers called like a twenty two three like combo air driver, and that's somebody who works like half inside the building, and then the other half of the time they 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 do air driving, and that constitutes a full time position as well. And like they have this split pay rate where they get one wage when they're working inside and then a completely different wage while they're driving. And this flies in the face of the the, the 224 drivers that were recently implemented. They don't have to deal with this at all. Like they're also like a hybrid position that can work both inside and outside. They get paid the same whether they're, you know, working in the building or they're on on the road. And, you know, th those are just a, a, a couple, you know, there, there are more ones that are kind of like particularly associated with, you know, what you might imagine working in, you know, a, a sort of like rapid, like next day delivery environment might include like, like forced holidays, like UPS can make us work on Christmas Eve. And like, I've always worked the day like before and immediately after Thanksgiving. And like, we don't get, you know, double time for it, like, like ground workers do. And so there's, there's just all these kind of like asterisks and exceptions that we have to deal with. And year after year, you know, it gets brought up around contract negotiations, just like how bad this article is, which by the way, I was, I was informed by a former, um, IBT official who was on the 1997 negotiating committee, this article was actually more or less written straight by the company and, and accepted by the union, like without modification. And so if you ever read it and, and you, you look at how bad it is with that in mind, then it becomes much more understandable, like how kind of beyond the pale this whole thing is. And every contract, it gets brought up about how much of a problem it is, but nothing ever seems to get done about it. We talked about in our part-timer episode, right? There's, there's sort of this divide in the union and part-timers have far worse pay, far worse benefits, protections than their full-time counterparts. Now, what we're talking about here is 
another sector of the workforce, many of them part-timers, who contractually since 1987 have had even worse conditions. And I think what is interesting or what's important to note is right in 1987, we're dealing with UPS who is confronting their competitor, FedEx. Let's let's move on decades, right, we're, to now. We're in a very different space. UPS is 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 very dominant. It's not like a, you know a, a burgeoning part of their business. This is a massive part of their business, and this is still the case where Article Forty exists, and it has not been paid attention to. It has not been changed, at least sufficiently, as I understand. So, yeah, please talk about why people should care about this. Absolutely. So like, you know, if you're the general public, you should care about this simply because like 6% of this country's GDP runs through UPS. And, you know, we're the ones handling the company's most premium packages. You know, air work is like, you know, just as important of like, you know, a component of like the global supply chain is, is, is anything else, you know, like we're not just shipping to like locations across the country. There's, there's business relationships between like multinational corporations that like we're facilitating, you know, in the form of like shipping from like China, India, Europe, you name it. So this is the stuff that makes the world go around. And this is the 24 seven global economy. And if that stops, that means serious issues for certain people. Like, for instance, like uh, some of the most valuable items we handle, aren't, they aren't packages, they're envelopes. And inside are like lucrative uh, contracts and documents and like legal agreements. Uh, so this stuff is a big deal on that level. But but secondly, people should care about this because, you know, if if you're a union represented worker at UPS and you've allowed this part of the contract to go unaddressed for so long, like that is absolutely a big part of the reason why we're in the position that we are right now. You know, we both read the the, the chapter of Joe Allen's book, The Package King in preparation you know, for this, and, and which I'd recommend everyone to read. It's it's a good book. Um, but in it, you know, Joe outlines how at like the time of Article 40 being like written, uh, the, the business media was reporting on how highly contentious uh, this was uh, amongst the union because they, the union contended that the company is using like these special air drivers who were paid less than like regular package car drivers. And it was seen as like undermining the standard of like high quality, sort of good paying union jobs that Teamsters had fought so hard for to maintain. And so that is 100% like the origin of the current like second tier 22 4 or like hybrid driving positions that are so controversial now, you know, like air drivers are the original 22 fours, you know, regular package car drivers. The way this works is like they're contractually entitled to deliver all the air volume that they can so long as they can get that volume to its destination by like its scheduled commitment time, you know, but that's like, not that's not always possible because that's usually pretty early in the morning so you know as long as they can do it without having to break from their normal route they will but like you know sometimes that's not possible and so like air drivers started out as this sort of like exception to help out where regular drivers couldn't reasonably be expected to get you know certain 
pieces there on time. And at first, this wasn't like an all the time thing because air delivery wasn't as big as it was today. So I think the union and the members sort of reluctantly let it slide. And then, you know, as, as it grew, air drivers became much more than that. They became like a sort of like pressure you know, like release valve because they have more flexibility than regular drivers. And sometimes like, for example, they'll go relieve these drivers like of their volume. And so, you know, my point in saying all that is, is that like, when it comes to this stuff, you've really got to extrapolate out like the implications of these proposals that you're letting through into the contract because they can have really far reaching implications down the road. You know, everything in the contract is connected because all of our positions at UPS as, a, as an operation are connected. And like, as people, I feel like our natural inclination is to sort of like think of ourselves first and assume that whatever happens to us doesn't really concern other people that much. Place like UPS, like that's just not true. Like you, you change anything in one part of the contract and it's going to affect people in another part. So as union members, we have to learn to see each other in one another's struggles and to stand shoulder to shoulder, support one another because, you know, an, an injury to one is an injury to all. Now, you're a union activist and this is the central issue you've been organizing around internally among your coworkers. Can you tell us what you've been doing, what, what other Teamsters have been doing around this issue and what you hope to see in this upcoming contract. Yeah, I got hired on five years ago, right prior to the 2018 contract. So I did experience, you know, one set of contract negotiations prior to this. I was still new at the time. So, you know, I, I, I didn't really know what I was looking at, like the way that I that I do today. And and so here the second time, like, like, watching things play out, I, I recognized things that I, I maybe missed the first time. And so the this time I got the sense that people really do understand that this is a problem. Certainly not everybody, but people who are, you know, kind of in the know and in touch about these issues know that like this is an embarrassment, really it's a huge stain on our contract and yet, you know, nothing seemed to get done about it. And so, you know, the more I thought about that, the more, you know, I basically determined that, well, you know, if, if anyone was ever going to like do anything about it, then wouldn't they have already? And, when I asked myself that question, I was like, all right, well, I guess that just means that if anyone's going to do it, it's going to have to be me. And so I resolved to do whatever I could to elevate to an audible level within the rest of the union. And the way that I did it was this, is that every few years around contract negotiations, what the union does is it encourages members to basically sit down and write proposals for, you know, amendments and changes that they would like to see to the contract and send them in and then they're all compiled and then the union sits down and takes stock of what they've been sent to get a sense of what the members desire to see so that they can you know conduct their jobs in a way that actually represents the will of the members and so 
you know, normally that takes place on like an atomized level where, you know, people just know that that's what they're supposed to do in their own particular area. And so it takes place, you know, within their, their bubble and there's nothing like really coordinated, like between areas. And so I wanted to make a big statement for air workers collectively. And what that meant was I felt that I had to get as many air workers as I could like on the same page about this and ready to submit like all of the same proposals. And so what I did was I threw up this website, fixarticle40.com, in which I outlined, you know, what this problem is, you know, for anybody who wasn't aware. And I laid out a, a sort of like a, like a 10 step plan you know, for, for us to collectively come together and fix it. And that included gathering feedback from as many air workers as possible around the United States. And me and the, the group of people that I, that I worked on with this, you know, spoke to well over 100 air workers across the country. And from the feedback they gave us, we were able to sort of distill that feedback into a set of proposals that we felt like ad addressed the most egregious aspects of this article. And then what we did was we, we turned around and we returned those proposals to all of the contacts that we made across the country by waging a really aggressive like social media campaign about this and just through a lot of like good member to member, like grassroots networking. And so we returned the proposals and the idea was that we all submit the same set of proposals from as many cities across the country as possible in order to demonstrate that the air workers have gotten together, that they know what they want and that they're making a statement that this is what they want to see happen and that they're serious about it. And we wanted like dozens of copies of these to wind up on the IBT's desk at their headquarters in Washington, we felt like that was a statement that would be kind of difficult to ignore. And so my goal was to get workers at 100 cities across, uh, air workers at 100 cities across 50 states to all do this, you know, but with the limited time and resources I, I had, I got about half that. People at 50 cities across 25 states, which is not bad for a first step. And I feel like I elevated this. If I didn't make this issue too big to ignore, then I at least elevated it to a, a level that it most likely has not um, been raised to prior to this point. And it was at that point that I was reached out to by Teamsters for a Democratic Union as we were sort of wrapping this all up. And they were gracious enough to this particular issue in a series of like events and like workshops that were held at their, their annual convention in Chicago, where a gathering of about, you know, four or 500 activists all descended upon and, and, and discuss certain issues and helped me elevate the, the, the conversation to a more prominent 
fixture in that way. And so I'm very grateful to them with that. And so that is is where everything sort of stands as far as the, you know, the the heavy lifting of the work that I've put in. It's not all that I'm going to do. There's more to come, but that has been, you know, what what I've been able to accomplish up to this point. Yeah, it sounds like an incredible amount of work and an incredible amount of dedication to something that hasn't gotten a lot of attention in a long time or or perhaps ever. Yeah, I'm curious, like, is there more energy this time around? Have you talked to other air workers? What What is different about 2023? Um, we know that there's a difference when it comes to militancy over the past 25 years. I'm curious if that translates onto Article 40, onto the air worker wing of the workforce. I hope so. But like, you know, other areas in UPS, there is a tension there that exists. Uh, you know, for, for the last 25 years, like the membership has grown accustomed to being told like, you know, by, by the international union that like when they go to them sort of like with concerns and stuff that, you know, the response they receive is don't worry about it. You know, like we'll we'll take care of that, and and so there's a a bit of cynicism, you know, especially with the unique space that air workers occupy. You know, like having been, you know, particularly underrepresented, that it's going to be extremely difficult to get any of this addressed. You know, if it gets addressed at all. But on the other hand, there is also you know, a recognition that, you know, despite all of the baggage, like of that history and, and, you know, the, the, the sort of dispiriting effect that it has had upon many thousands of people, you know, there, there is at least a recognition amongst a fairly sizable cohort of, of people, you know, within air workers that, you know, if there ever was an opportunity that that this is it. And so I'm certainly not asking anybody to overlook everything that's happened up to this point. And I'm also not asking them to believe this time is going to be 100% different and the, the union is, is going to flip on a dime and like give us everything that we ever, you know, hoped for with this issue. What I am going to do is say is that nobody can predict the future, but insofar as we have an opportunity, I feel like we have a responsibility to see what might become of it. And and so as far as anything else that's like important to get out there, you know, what I would say is that absolutely please, if you're an air worker, participate in the Air Worker Day of Action coming up that we are planning. So I have been in touch with workers, with air workers at a couple dozen air operations, you know, as well as organizers within TDU and people within the IBT itself. And we are going to make a second push beyond what was done with the contract proposal campaign. We are going to do an Air Worker Day of Action across the country. People are going to be out in front of their gates, leafleting to raise awareness on this issue and agitating to make it a more prominent fixture of the conversation and a priority in contract negotiations. Uh, because when I take a look at all this, really, at the end of the day, what, what strikes me is, is that no union member should have so little when others have so much. So if you're an air worker, please get involved. Contact me. You can reach me at admin at fixarticle40.com. That's A-D-M-I-N 
at fixarticle40.com. And even if you're not an air worker, still get involved, show some support, you know, even if that means stepping outside of your comfort zone, because that's how we grow, that's how we get better, and that's ultimately how we succeed. And we will definitely put all this information in the description of the show. Matt Cavagrotti, thanks for joining me on The Upsurge. It's my pleasure. You just listened to an exclusive bonus episode of The Upsurge. Matt mentioned a number of things related to his organizing around Article 40. You can find all that information and more at fixarticle40.com. We'll also put it in the description. The Upsurge is produced in partnership with In These Times, a nonprofit magazine that covers the labor movement closely. Check them out at inthesetimes.com, where you can also find an archive of all past episodes. If you're listening but are not yet our supporter on Patreon, please, if you like the show, if you want to keep it going, head over to patreon.com slash upsurgepod and become a patron today. The link is in the description. And if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at UpsurgePod, Facebook The Upsurge. You can also find full episodes now since episode four on our YouTube channel, The Upsurge. Go spread our show far and wide. Leave us ratings, likes, comments, all the good stuff. Thanks so much to our patrons who are keeping the show going. The podcast was edited by myself and Ruby Walsh. It was produced by NYGP and Ruby Walsh. Music is by Casey Gallagher. The cover art was done by Devlin Clara Resitar. I'm Teddy Ostro. Thanks for listening and catch you next time.